Well, good morning again. Good to be with you. Um, a number of years ago, I was uh, serving in a, a church in Texas, and I was working through the Gospel of Matthew uh, on Sunday mornings, and I got to a series of passages toward the last half of the book that kept talking about, and this happened on the feast of whatever. And this happened on the feast of whatever. And this happened on the feast. And I realized, you know, I, I'd, been a, I'd been a pastor for, at the, at the time, about 25 years. And I just realized I, I didn't really get all the feasts. So I started reading up on it. And the more I read up on it, the more I realized I don't know anything about this. And so I kept reading, and I kept digging, and I kept digging, and, and, and it finally hit me like, like a bolt of lightning right between the eyes. You really don't understand the ministry of Jesus, and you don't understand the cross unless you understand the backstory of the Old Testament and how the people of God lived. Now, for example, you know that in the week before Jesus was crucified, he was constantly being tested, right? He, the, the scribes and the Pharisees would meet him in the temple courtyards, and they asked him questions, and they pestered him. And over and over again, you read that he answered them with great wisdom, and they could find no fault in him, right? And it was the scribes, and then it was the Pharisees, and then it was the chief priests that began to test him. And even finally, Pilate tested him. Pilate asked him a bunch of questions, and Pilate couldn't find any fault in him. So Pilate tried to release him, and the chief priests wanted to kill him. Do you know why they did all those tests? You just read it. The lamb that is to be slain must be without what? Without blemish. Did they find any blemishes in him? They found no fault. No blemish. No unfaithfulness. No deceit. No ulterior motives. They found no blemish. So the more you begin to think about the cross, which occurs on a day that we call, what? What day did Jesus die? Oh, you guys are well. You guys are well discipled. We typically in America call it Good Friday, but th th they would not have called it Good Friday. They called it the Passover week. This was all part of Passover, and he was buried as the sun went down, as a new day was dawning in the in the Jewish way of telling time, and that was a feast day too. That was the feast of unleavened bread. And he rose from the grave on Sunday morning, and that was a feast day. That, that was the day of first fruits. And, and understanding how these feasts interweave and take meaning really shapes the way we understand the cross and the burial and the resurrection of our Savior. So this morning, we're going to go to the backstory to make sure we understand what's going on there which casts a light on the meaning and the understanding of the crucifixion of Jesus. 
So Dave and I talked a little bit, and he said, now listen, next week I've got to cover the blood sacrifice issue, so don't get into that. I, I okay, well, we're good, we're good. So I, I want to remind you of the story that is involved in this passage. You know the story of the Passover, of the Exodus, when God brought his people out of the land of Egypt, when the angel came and visited the people and looked at their houses to see if they were marked with blood. You know that story. What a lot of us don't realize is that that story is the tail end of another story. It's a story of God introducing himself to his people. <clears throat> you remember how Moses got to Israel in order to take the people out, right? Moses had been raised in the, in the courts. He had been raised in Pharaoh's household. He was like a stepson to Pharaoh himself, grew up with Pharaoh's sons and Pharaoh's daughters. He played in the temple courts. He was educated in, in uh, the University of Cairo, Egypt, or whatever they called that city back then. He had, a, he had advanced training in the courts of Pharaoh, but he, he had a distant memory in the back of his mind that he hadn't been born there. He had been raised, and he had been born to the Jewish slave people, in the land of Goshen. And he probably didn't remember the basket that they put him in the water in. But Pharaoh's daughter had plucked him out of the water and raised him as her own. And some of that might have been recalled. Some of the training that he learned from his mother when she was his wet nurse might have sunk in, and somehow he gets in a situation where there's a fight between an Egyptian and a Jew, and he takes the side of the Jew, and he kills the Egyptian, and the rails come off. And he's got to run for his life because Pharaoh has discovered. So he goes out to the desert, Midian. Forty years, people. 40 years he's trailing sheep, goats, in the rough country. 40 years. And then he meets God at a burning bush. And the burning bush story is really quite remarkable. He, he goes close to the bush and he hears a voice coming out of the bush and he has this long conversation with a bush. Now, I mean, you've you got to read the Bible with a little bit of, a, little bit of, an, of an eye of in, inquiry and, and interest. He has a talk with a bush. God says to him out of the bush, I want you to go back to Egypt. And he, he, doesn't, he doesn't check to see what he's been drinking. He doesn't, he doesn't wonder whether he's losing his mind. He answers the bush. He, he says... Uh, why would I go back there? And, and the bush says to him, because I want you to set my people free. I want you to take them out of the land of Egypt. And he finally gets down to the point of it all and says, who are you? Somebody's talking to me out of a bush that's on fire. Who are you? When I go to the people of Israel and I tell them that you want me to take them out of Egypt, they're going to say, who sent you? Why should we listen to you? You might be crazy. Yeah. 
and God gives him a name. You remember the name? I, I am. That I am is the way we translate it. It's a very kind of a provocative, weird Hebrew sentence. And, and if you do it literally, it comes across something like, I am the God who is ising. I'm the God who is alive and continues to be. But all of those gods, and there are many that you're going to meet in Egypt, they are not ising. They, they don't exist. They're worshipped, but there's nothing on the other end of the worship. I'm the God who is. They are gods that are not. Okay, you remember that? Now, Moses goes back. And he's got to meet Pharaoh. And it's, you know, it's kind of an interesting meeting. And he goes there and he's got the, he's got the staff and he, you know, all the magic tricks of the, the sorcerers in Egypt. And, and then comes the point. A series of contests. We call them the ten plagues. Right? They start with the river Nile, the water turns into blood, and then the frogs, and then the lice, and then the gnats, and then locusts. And, and But what most of us fail to understand is that every one of those was a showdown between the God who is and the gods that were not. You see, the Nile was worshipped as a god. That gave life. And God said, I want my people who don't even know me yet. I want them to see that the Nile isn't what gives them life. I am. And I want them to see that the, 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 the God that the Egyptians worship that has the form of a frog isn't a life giver. I can take it away. I'm the life giver. And the Egyptian sorcerers, when they would reach down and take dust and throw it in the air or ashes and throw it in the air and that the ashes would be scattered by the wind and it was supposed to bring healing, well, the very dust and the very gnats and the very insects that filled the air didn't bring life, it brought boils and sores and disease because God is the one who heals, not them. And it was one after another of the gods of Egypt that toppled and fell before the God who is because those gods were false gods. With me? All right. There's one last God that has to be dealt with. And it's the God whose name is Pharaoh. But it's not just a man. See, you have to understand how the Egyptians thought about this God. He was, he was a God who came and lived on earth. And the power of this God was not just in his chariots, not just in his arms, not just in his education, but it was in his loins. Because this God had the power to procreate and make another God his firstborn 
son. And he would grow up and he would have divine power in his loins to procreate and keep God reproducing and alive in Egypt alone. So we read the story of Exodus chapter 12 and God says to his people and God says to Moses, I've been showing you that the gods are not. They, they, they are nothing. They, they don't have life. They don't bring you life-giving water. They don't bring you healing. They don't bring you strength. They don't, they don't love you. I do. But now I have to show you that the central god of the Egyptians does not have the right to continue to exist as the leader of Egypt. Only I will be known. And so God says to his people, I'm going to take you out of Egypt, but your coming out of Egypt is going to come at the cost of Egypt's God. People read the story of the plagues and they read the story of this last plague, the death of the firstborn, and they react and they say, my goodness, God was bloodthirsty. God was vindictive. God was primitive. God was ugly. Look at all those babies he killed. God wasn't slaying babies. God was toppling idol gods. He was announcing to his own people and he was announcing to the world that they are not gods. They do not protect their people. They are not the ones you are to worship. There is only one God. Amen. And he loves his people. And he loves his people to death. So he tells the children of Israel, I want you to kill a lamb. I want you to have a feast. But it's going to be a different feast. You're going to eat it standing up. And you got to eat it all. You can't have leftovers. So if you have a small family, you join with another family. By the time the first century comes along, the, the understanding, particularly for a rabbi and his disciples, was that you had, to, you had to have 10 or 12 men to consume a whole lamb. So Jesus and his disciples celebrated the Passover as a group, right? The plan was to, to, to get a lamb and to cook the lamb and to eat the lamb, which had been done the night before, and then the arrest, and then Jesus, right? So they were going to have a feast, but they had to eat it standing up. They had to have their sandals on. They had to have staff in hand. They had to be ready to go because... And, and here's the thing that you just can't get past. The toppling of the gods that occupy our heart always is painful. When Egypt lost its God, it brought Egypt to its knees. It brought Egypt to the ground on its face. Because when God rips the idols out of your heart, it hurts. Yeah, yeah. 
So Israel's to take the blood of the lamb. It's interesting. We're, 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 we're about to f- read a story in which death is going to occur across the land. All of it's symbolic of the idol god that was Pharaoh and his loins. The idea that Pharaoh would continue to reign over Egypt with divine right. That was the god. And we're about to read that that god is about to get toppled off his throne and crushed into dust and and nothing. But, But Israel didn't know her god yet. She had only seen nine displays. But before that it had been four 170 years since she had worshipped him. There may have been people that kept alive the faith, but Israel was not a worshipping community. She was a slave community. She was an Egyptian community. She knew the gods of Egypt. She knew how they operated. She had fear of offending those gods. Israel was an Egyptian subset. When God sent Moses, Moses didn't just give them God's name. Moses had to introduce who he was. And if you remember when they got out of Egypt and they got to Mount Sinai and God gave them the Ten Commandments, do you remember what number one is? No other gods. No other gods. God's, I will not share my glory with anyone else. I am God, and you are the people of the only God that is. When you know that, and when you live your life before my faith, I just I just love this, this confession that you read, this prayer of confession. We've not loved our neighbors as ourselves. In your mercy, forgive what we have been. Love that. Because what we have been is not just good people with with check marks of sins. What we have been is idol worshipers. Every one of us. We worship comfort. We worship success. We worship our money. Tim Keller talks about New York as having three idols. Sex, money, and power. We don't live in New York. We live in the South. At least one of those idols has to get traded in for tradition. We worship our tradition. We're serious about our conservatism. Right? They become idols. They become the things that we think gives us life and joy and happiness and peace. When God says no other gods, he's saying to his people, who don't know him. I'm all you're going to need. You have me. You once had me in the Garden of Eden, but Adam and Eve just decided that paradise wasn't good enough. So they'd opt for something a little bit more than paradise. We're going to follow the lie of the serpent. God says, no, 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 no. I want you back. I want to restore Eden. I want life to be beautiful again, where where God and his people are united, but you cannot have another God. Right? I I, I had a young couple in my office one time preparing them for marriage. 
and and we're working through the prep work, and it, it's good. It's it's going very well in there. And the guy says, uh, "Do we have to reveal all of our secrets before we get married?" And I said, "You know, let's talk about that." I, I wasn't quite sure what the best answer for that one was, right? I mean, really, do, do, well, how did you say it? You're only as, you're only as sick as your secrets. Hmm. Well, the guy starts out and he says, he says, I've had a lot of girlfriends. I've even had a lot of girlfriends since we've been in dating. I, I've even had girlfriends since we've been engaged. And she stops and she says, wait a minute, wait a minute. Now we're not talking secrets. Now we're talking deal killer. She says, you cannot have other loves besides me. And he looked at her surprised, like, that's what you think this is? She, she didn't get it. I mean, he didn't get it. She, she said, you can't have somebody else in your heart if you're going to pledge love to me alone. That's what God said. He said to his people, if you're going to be my people, and if I'm going to be your God, you need to understand, there is no other God you're allowed to have. Because those are nothing, and they will kill you. You see, the false gods, the gods that we give our hearts to, the gods that we put our trust in, they will always inevitably destroy us. You put your faith in your money. It's going to fail you. Either it goes away, and there goes your hope, or you get it and it doesn't satisfy you because you got to have more. But whatever it is, whatever are the idol gods of your heart, they will fail you. And God in his love says, look, not only am I going to tell you no other gods, I'm going to destroy your gods. I'm going to destroy them so that you see that there's nothing there after the dust clears. And that's what happened in the, in the story of the ten plagues. And the tenth was the destruction of the God in whose loins was the power to rule Egypt. And God said, no. No. These are my people. And so they walked out of Egypt. Now, let's fast forward to the cross. What died there? Well, Jesus died. If you watch Mel Gibson's movie, the power of the moment was the emotion and the horror and the ugliness and how much he really loved us. But more died there than just a man. You know what died there? Your idols and mine. The ones that you and I put our faith in. My life's a mess, so I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to trust in anesthesia, either delivered in liquid form or drug form, or, or sitting in my in in my recliner and letting the TV wash all my problems away. I mean, that's one of our idols. Or money. Or power, or, or, or independence. I will not be told what to do. I must maintain my... It, really? Really? You're not controlled by anything? 
goodness, I'm looking at a bunch of people here. All of us are controlled by something else. We're controlled by our secrets. We're controlled by our guilt. We're controlled by our shame. We're controlled by the past that we don't want people to know about. We're run. We're, we're run by it. Idols may have different names, but they're all, they're all things that we put our trust and hope in that inevitably fail us. You know what Jesus did on the cross? He crushed your idols to dust. He destroyed them. When Israel had to paint her doorposts, and it was, it was not only the sides and the top, but they, they always had a kind of a groove cut in the stone at the base so that the door would sit in the frame and water wouldn't run in on the few occasions that it would run. The, the blood ran down there. It was completely covered, all, all four sides. It was, it was like a womb. It was like a womb, and God said, those who pass in and out of this door are covered. It's not the loins of Pharaoh that give you hope. It's God who gives you hope. It's God who gives you protection. It's God who bears, who bears life for you. Jesus went to the cross, and he destroyed your idols. He killed the death that your idols produce. He crushed it so that idolatry and the idols of the heart and the idols of your life will not take you down. But I want you to see the other side of this. And this is a really, this is a really amazing little passage and it's a, it's a passage that we overlook all the time. Yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm contemporary. I have my Bible on my phone. Because I always know I'm going to bring my phone, but I, I, I leave Bibles all over the country because I'm always forgetting them. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, this month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. Did you notice that passage? Do you know what God just did? He reset the calendar. He said to Israel in March, no, it's not January that starts the year. The new year starts in March now. He rewrote the calendar, and Israel was schizophrenic for that moment on. For the rest of her history, she had two new years. She had the, the spiritual new year that began with Passover, but she kept the agricultural calendar because she tried always to fit into the nations around her. So she went through life schizophrenic, but she was the people, she was the special, beloved people of God who were supposed to be known by something. And what she was supposed to be known by was this is the day the idols have died and you begin new life as my people alone. You ask most children of God who have come to faith from a past and you say to them when did you come to faith and they will give you day and date and sometimes time right they will give you why 
because that was the moment at which everything changed. I can't give you a date because I was raised in a Christian home, but I can tell you a time when it mattered and I shifted. It was high school senior year. And at that time, there was, there was an experience I went through that just... And from that moment on, I was actively seeking the will of the only God that was. And I had laid the other ones down as far as I understood what they were. I still struggle with idols, just like you. When I have to repent to my wife of having said something that hurt her, I don't just apologize for what I said. I try to dig down deep and figure out and tell her what idol was I chasing when I, when I was willing to throw you under the bus? And then I have to confess my idolatry to her. And then she forgives so much sweeter when my confession goes deep like that. That's what I loved about your confession. Help us amend what we are, direct what we shall be, so that we may delight in your will and walk in your ways. How beautiful is that? This isn't just, Lord, help me get rid of the blots on my picture. You know, the stains, the ink here and the mark there and the, the guilt there. Let's get rid of those stains so I can be free of those stains. No, no, sin is deeper than that. Sin changes what you are and how you live and what you're directed at. And it all flows out of the idols of the heart. And what you need to understand this morning and what I call you to understand is when Jesus destroyed your idols on the cross, that day began to be the new year for you. The new beginning of life for you that gets remembered, that gets cycled why do you suppose it is that when Jesus established the Lord's Supper, he said, keep doing this. Do this every year. Do this in what? In remembrance of me. Is, is that just, oh, we should remember how sweet Jesus is. No, no. It's, it's we should remember that that's the day Jesus destroyed the false and gave us truth. He destroyed the idols and gave us himself. That's the day life began. And I got to remember that, that my life began in his death because that's when the idols were set free. That's a big deal. That, that, that's a big deal. And so I, I, I want you to reflect. We're going to come to the Lord's Supper in a few minutes. And... And, and I want you to think about this. I want you to think about your idolatries. All of us have them. We live for pleasure. We live for anesthesia. We live for accumulation of goods. We live for, we live for revenge because we think revenge against the people that have hurt us is going to somehow set us free. <laughs> we... we We've got idols all over the place. It's like we walk into a house and every tile in the ceiling and every nook and cranny has little statues. And that's, that's what our heart looks like. John Calvin called our hearts idol factories. We keep inventing new ones. We keep popping them out left and right like crazy. I talked to a wealthy man one day and, and I said, 
you have been blessed with much. How do you handle it? He said, it's, it's a real struggle. He said, it's a real struggle because I, I, I got to tell you, I worship my, my wealth. He said, life was a lot easier when I didn't have it and I was chasing it. But he said, I realize now that that was still my idol. I just didn't have it in my grip. Now I got it in my grip and I'm still worshiping it and I'm afraid it's going to be taken away from me. It was just fascinating. It, you see, because I, the idolatry of materialism is not the possession of the wealthy. Materialism is the sin of the poor. They are convinced that money is going to solve their problems. No, it didn't. God is. We're going to come to the table, and I want you to think about your idols. And I want you to lament your idols, and I want you to say, how foolish of me to worship that. How foolish of me to worship this. How foolish of me to worship me, or to worship that that one person that if I, if I finally could find him or her and get married, all my problems would go, how foolish of me to think that's going to solve my... How foolish of me to worship the river, the gnats, the frogs, the sun, the water, the power of my loins. How foolish. But you know what I want you to think of next? I want you to think of your Savior on the cross... And I want you to hear him say, this is for you to take away from you all the idols that will kill you. I will destroy them. And I will give you life. Trust me. You get to reset the calendar every time you come to the Lord's Supper. Every time. You reset the calendar. You start all over again. Because the sins are gone, the idols are gone, the guilt is gone, the shame is gone, and there is life in him only. Isn't that sweet? Let's pray. Father, thank you for the cross. Thank you for crushing the idols. Not only the ten plagues in Egypt, but the ten plagues that pester us in the final Passover lamb and his death. Thank you for covering us by your blood so that the idols can't own us. They can't destroy us. They can't kill us because you've covered us, protected us, fight for us, pray for us. Thank you for the cross. Help us remember it. In Jesus' name, amen.